Welcome to another episode of Packy Chat, number 25. Who would have thought a year and a half ago we'd be on, uh, still be going with 25 episodes? Uh, definitely thanks to the people that write in to Facebook and message us and send us emails, uh, Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for all those people that uh, have given us ideas and suggestions and kind of keep us going, give us uh Give us the motivation and the fodder to uh, chat another week. And again, I think I've said it before, but we apologize. The The time between uh, our episodes is, is kind of getting stretched out here as life kind of gets in the way with things. Uh, we're definitely slowing down. We still try to get one out about once a month. This is, I think, the longest stretch in between uh, our podcast. But nonetheless, here we are putting another one out. Thanks, as always, to everybody that listens to us, supports us, sends us messages. We appreciate it. Anyone that has given us feedback, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'd like to reach out and thank our Patreons. We have a handful of them that still support us and provide us a little bit of, uh, little bit of income to help keep this going. There is some expense to this, and so we really appreciate the people, our top patrons, that help make it possible. If you'd like to join us and be a patron, uh, go to patreon.com backslash chat. If you just can't do it right now, that's cool. We uh, we respect that. And as long as you listen and give us a thumbs up and share us with your friends, we're happy with that. So I, I hope that this week is worth the wait in between uh, podcasts because we have a, a great guest joining us this time. It's been a while since we had uh, somebody join us for a chat. And this time, you know, several years ago, I was at an EMA conference, and uh, this person was a keynote speaker. And when he was introduced by Tom, uh, he said, you know, there's few people in life that can be introduced by just one name. You know, someone like a prince, uh, like the musician prince, not a prince. But anyways, uh, this person can. And there's a few people in our business that can be introduced and recognized by just one name. And Dennis is one of them. Uh, no need for a last name. De- Dennis is very well known in the business. He probably helped so many of us in our barns and programs uh, over the years, and so much of the advancement of artificial insemination and uh, elephant medicine can be owed to what Dennis has done for us and for the elephants. So it's with a great pleasure that I will stop babbling and introducing him, and uh, maybe we'll just get into the chat and see what Dennis has to say. Thanks for listening. Dennis, how'd you get into elephants? Not on purpose. <laughs> uh, I was I had a large client locally that was a that I was doing a lot of embryo transfer work in cattle and, and uh, a lot of other repro work for his commercial herd. And he was on the board for the local zoo and the veterinarian they'd had for a few years. This was back in eighties, early eighties. And uh, the veterinarian had been working there was hot on the raving horses, which were really a hot item then. He left for Kentucky and they asked me if I would consider helping out at the zoo. And I said no a couple of times. And then I finally said, well, I'll try it for six months. Either way, if you don't want me to, I won't. And end up being there 17 years. And that, that at Springfield there at Dickinson Park Zoo, there was a really good crew of elephant handlers at the time. Uh, program that really grew and provided lots of challenges. That's kind of what I was missing in what I was doing every day in embryo transfer. I felt more like a technician and there weren't 
there weren't any questions really to be answered, although I was doing the latest things. I was splitting embryos and sexing embryos and doing all that. Your history with repro and cattle just, you know, it was natural to start working on repro and elephants? Well, there was a little bit more of a transition than that. That same owner had a section of land with the game ranch about 40 miles from there. And I did some work for him out there before that on Pierre David Deer and Sicilian donkeys and some other stuff at a, at a, at a corporate retreat he had built. How did you uh, come to work with Feld and all of that? Well, with the zoo having success and, and uh, helping a lot of other facilities breed elephants, we let them bring elephants in with the bull that we were successful at collecting semen fairly regularly at high quality and didn't know that how special he was at the time. I assumed others would be just as successful and that's not proven to be true over time. But uh, uh, we were bringing lots of elephants in. I was doing consulting for some other facilities as well with elephants on repro and then in 97, I started doing consulting with uh, Feld. Uh, and part of that was because I grew up with uh, a circus down the road, winter quarters down the road from me about four miles and rode the school bus with the current owner of the circus. Uh, he was the same age as my younger brother, four years younger than I was. And I uh, knew him and worked with him and he helped. He bought an ultrasound for the zoo to use, for me to use at the zoo and anywhere else I was working uh, back in the early 90s. So in that particular circus leased three elephants to Feld with an act on the, one of the, on the red unit. And that's when I went in to check on one of their elephants that we had bred and was pregnant at the, at the zoo was back on the road. Uh, I did some consulting and repro checks with uh, Gunther Gabriel Williams on the red unit in California and then started working at the uh, Center for Elephant Conservation about monthly, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less from 97 to 2004. And then I uh, had increased the amount of time and work I was doing until 2004 with Feld. And then in 2014, I retired from, I was teaching at the university at the time for 18 years. Feld was uh, providing, I, they provided a grant to the university to for 75% of my time to work for them during that time. And then when I retired, I went full-time with Feld in 2014. It just evolved like a lot of things. It, doors opened and I happened to walk through them. You know, when you mentioned, um, you know, Gunther, um, you know, I've, in my spare time, I've read a lot of circus books, including, um, you know, Gunther's book as well. Do you, you know, can I put you in the spot? Do you have a, a Gunther story or a favorite Gunther story that you have? Sometimes it's hard to pick out one, but he was, he was no longer performing. He had already officially retired at that point, but he was still on the unit with Mark, his son. Uh, but Gunther was the one out there first thing in the morning, taking care of elephants and, and feeding them and training them and working with them all day, even though, quote, he had retired. I'm kind of finding that same problem. I'm having trouble stopping. Yeah, and obviously you had a lot of um, mammalian repro work before you started working with elephants. Is there any, you know, when you started to learn about elephant reproduction and doing all the work you had, is there anything that kind of surprised you about elephants? Lots of things. <laughs> Lots of things, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
first started working with elephants in the early 80s. Uh, we took blood samples weekly and sent them off to a lab in Wisconsin. The only lab that was able to measure the lower levels of progesterone that elephants had. And so at the time, uh, you'd save up six months worth and send it off and then you get it back and you try to guess when the next heat cycle would be. It wasn't real successful. Uh, but uh, the big surprise really was the research that found that the other mammals that we know of have one LHP can ovulate in a, in a cycle. And elephants usually have two LH peaks. Uh, one doesn't ovulate, there's no egg to release to become pregnant. And 21 days later, they have that second peak. So that was very unique uh, and helped us with the timing of artificial insemination as, as we became more successful with it. The first AI that we were successful with, we didn't have that knowledge yet. So we uh, used progesterone daily. And if it was up for slightly for two days, we'd AI on the third and fourth day. And that was the way we got that first pregnancy. And it wasn't long after that, that, that it became known in the elf community that there were two LH peaks that you could use. And that gave you time to know when to collect semen, ship it, make arrangements. And so artificial insemination became uh, more successful. That, that first day I was the one at uh, Dickerson? Yeah. Yeah, that one, uh, I think back now, uh, we had we've been trying to do some AIs. I had, uh, my thinking was try to make it as field friendly as possible when I started. So I was doing a surgical AI most of the time, on, uh, particularly on one elephant that was pretty tough. So I, we didn't really want to put people in, or ourselves at uh, risk while doing it. And that we could put her in a, a ERD, make about a four inch incision and I could directly inseminate. We didn't have ultrasound at that time to know in elephants, we had ultrasound, but it was, it was late eighties and uh, did several surgeries, particularly on one elephant for AI. But later when we did ultrasound, we found that she, there wasn't any way she was gonna get pregnant. She had a lot of lyomas the whole time. Uh, but this younger cow had a calf. We uh, so that, that was helpful to know that she was fertile, could have a calf. Uh, we did her laying down. The scope we had was donated from the local hospital and about 30 to 40% of the, it was the old fiber optic endoscope. About 40% of the fibers were broken. So you had all these black dots everywhere. So you couldn't see much. But uh, when you tried to run it up at that time, you got three foot of urogenital canal to go up before you even go in. So we laid her on her side and propped a couple of bales of hay for the upper leg and got down behind her, fed that up in there and, and she got pregnant. Sometimes you get lucky. What, what were some of the turning points that, that when you started having success collecting semen and then getting more uh, confident in the, in the AIs? So I guess two questions. As I mentioned earlier, we, we had an elephant in Springfield at the time that most of the time you got really good, high quality, 90% motility from him. If he was in mess, not so much. It was usually urine contaminated. Uh, but most of the time, if he was not in mess, you got really good samples fairly easily, sometimes not. So it was just like any other thing. And I could 
extended and normal extenders that we use for cattle, put it in the refrigerator and watch it for five or six days and it still had just as good a motility. But they weren't getting pregnant. They weren't getting pregnant. And then a visit with a colleague who's now deceased from Omaha said, have you looked at the acrosomes? And I hadn't because in other species, if the sperm stay modal, the acrosomes are intact. Uh, and I had a grad student at the time do a project and we found within two to four hours, if you don't provide some kind of protectant to protect that membrane that covers the acrosome or the acrosome membrane, it's gotta be in place when it penetrates the egg because it's got enzymes in it that helps it penetrate the egg. If it's gone, they can't penetrate. So in Asian elephants, we found they were, well, they were very modal. If the acrosome was gone, they get there and can't, can't perform the deed to penetrate into the egg and fertilize it. And we ended up looking at that and at the time started using low levels of DMSO and became successful in Asian elephants. Uh, bad luck, good luck depends on how you look at it. We've learned a lot of things in Asian elephants because they weren't easy. In retrospect, if I had been working with African elephants, we would have thought it was easy and then didn't know why they couldn't get Asians pregnant. Because uh, African membranes are a lot more stable. You can do a lot more with them with lower quality extenders uh, just because of difference in composition of that membrane. How, how did you figure out the whole semen collection process? It goes back to my cattle days. That client I told you about had a lot of Brahmas, Brahmas and other breeds. And he had other, he had five different registered breeds. I was doing embryo transfer in and collecting semen and for breeding soundness exams and cattle. And the Brahmas and most of the other breeds, we use electro ejaculation. That's fairly innocuous in them. If you use it correctly, you get good semen sample, you know what they're doing. Uh, Brahma cattle don't react very well to it. They go down in the chute, they kick, they, they, for whatever reasons, it doesn't really work well. And the technique that I use in Brahma cattle is to massage the glands and you could strip some semen out of them that way. So we talked about it there at the zoo in Springfield and decided to try it. Uh, we had been doing some manual penis massage to try to collect and that really wasn't successful. But when we started acting directly, adding rectal massage to that, we did get an average of about 30 mils. We published a paper, he was a major bull in that paper several years ago. And over time, obviously we had some samples that were just two or three mils, but we averaged about 30 mils. And again, he was the exception. What a cool chance and, and how lucky the industry is to have that resource. I mean, both you, but a, a facility that is so willing to let you do that. I couldn't imagine if we didn't know what, if we didn't know what we know now, how we'd ever learn it. Because I don't think there'd be so many places that would be open to, to, to that kind of uh, experiment, if you will, you know, to advance, advance the science. I just don't see that happening nowadays. Yeah, in retrospect, the director at the time was uh, the, uh, I don't know what you would call it now. We don't really have that, but he was, he was uh, kind of the head of the elephant SSP for Asian elephants. Uh, and so he traveled with us to, with he and I traveled to some meetings like in early on in the mid eighties to New Orleans for one of the first meetings we had on, on uh, reproduction in, in Asian elephants. There was eight or 10 of us there at that one. 
I can imagine there's many variables that contribute whether you're going to be successful in your AI attempts. You know, Dennis, is there anything that we could do with our females to help increase the likelihood or the chances of being successful? Breed early. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we initially thought we were breeding older Asian elephants initially because in my trips to India, for instance, uh, I'd, I'd also say on between the temples, and which would I couldn't touch the males there, but they let me touch the females because <laughs> they weren't sacred. The males I couldn't I couldn't soil them, uh, but uh, in the in the government camps, I would go in and do thirty elephants in a day uh, beside the creek, and I was and they have very good records in those government camps over the years. And I was ultrasounding some cows in there. One of them was 62 and pregnant with their 13th calf on an ultrasound. Uh, and several of them in their 50s and 60s were pregnant. Not all of them. There were some that had quit. And I think we're finding that now in our facilities as well. Uh, some can continue to go on and have several more calves. A lot of them quit after the third, fourth, fifth calf. Uh, so our assumption was if they can be pregnant and carry calves when they're in their 60s, surely we can breed them in their 30s and 40s. And it wasn't until we really put together the ultrasound with the pathology at some necropsies and realized that, hey, these, these cows that are in their 30s have had two or three times as many cycles as a cow in the wild has had in her lifetime. Because they carry the calf a couple of years. The nutrition is not the best. So it's usually a year and a half or two before they cycle again. So every four or five years, they have a calf. And they only have one or two cycles between that and get pregnant. Uh, so actually, by the time we're seeing calves here, Asians particularly, start to cycle when they're three or four years old. And I know in Sri Lanka, when we looked at several, uh, they were usually seven or eight years old and having their first calf when they're eight or nine. Uh, so I think that's one of the keys that we can try to focus on with these younger elephants that are kind of, especially Africans that are kind of around now. We don't want to wait till they're in their late teens to start breeding them. We need to breed them at least when they're nine or 10. How about calf intervals? Is there, um, you know, like the more, the more kids they've had, can they go longer, you know, in between calves still be successful? Is there a certain and time frame where if an elephant doesn't get pregnant again, it decreases the likelihood of that happening. My experience has been after about 10 years, if they haven't had a calf and they've been cycling that whole time, we start to see some pathologies. A few will still get pregnant, but most of them, in my experience, are, that's kind of the time frame I see that change happen. So yeah, I think calving intervals is important like to see it at four or five, but certainly five or six is very, very doable. You start waiting after six years, your opportunities are limited. Because an elephant only has a three or four cycles a year, depending on how she hits the calendar. And so if you have some hitches, you, you have fewer, fewer opportunities. As I've said for many years, pregnancy is a disease of exposure. So uh, you talked about the young elephants. What about an older elephant? Because I know we get that question a lot, like uh, on the tag and stuff. It's, oh, I have this, you know, 25-year-old elephant or 
and she's never gotten pregnant. You know, we've done this, we've done that. Um, do you, do you look at age a lot or do you mostly just look at pathology and, and that kind of thing? Both. Uh, I've had some 30 year old elephants have successful calves, but I think the, the facility needs to understand that it's a higher risk, just like it is in other animals. If the first time a horse gets pregnant when she's 14, that's not, that's not ideal. And I think uh, the same kind of thing for a late 20s, particularly, we start to see a lot of elephants start to develop pathologies of the uterus. It's going to re restrict motility of the sperm. Two fertilized are the ability of the calf to be uh, born successfully as we go. So it's, it's really not as, I don't see a strict age and I don't have any problem with, with facilities if they've got a 31 or two year old elephant. If she doesn't have a calf, that's the last one in that family. Uh, but they've got to understand the risk and make those risks known to their administrators above them as well as the public that's interested if it's, if it's a public facility. Public has to have buy-in as well because if it goes wrong then and they weren't prepared, then you're in the wrong place. And then uh, I know we get this question a lot, but as far as diet goes, if you have an elephant that's pregnant, do you look to change the diet at all? Do you cut, try to keep it the same? What's your philosophy on that? Mine is I, I, I'm more attuned to the weight than the diet. Uh, but if you figure up, I'd like to have a calf weight 200 pounds, not 300. I'd really like it to be a little less than two if I could, but there aren't very many oh, around in Asian elders. We'd like to uh, under 400. Yeah, yeah, I've had, had a 470 pounder. I was lucky to get out alive. That's the largest one I've gotten out alive. And I had a 470 pounder for another facility that stayed in mom an extra five years and still like 470 missing parts. So, so with that being said, as far as weight goes, what, what uh, would you see as an ideal? I mean, I, I know it depends on the elephant, obviously, right? Yeah. But what would you see as like an ideal? Well, if we want a 200-pound calf, placenta's going to weigh about 40 pounds. Fluid's going to weigh another 60 or 80 that's there. So you're really, and you're really adding, let's be generous, 350 pounds. So if we say she's going to gain 500 pounds, I'm fine with that. I've had places in the first, when they found out she's pregnant at 12 weeks, they cranked the goodies to her and she gained a thousand pounds in the next two months. And then she got lots of edema and she had a lot of problems having the calf. If we want to start breeding these elephants younger, like one of the challenges that I know come up are these elephants are still growing. So right. really tough to monitor what's baby weight, what's, what's growing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we all know most of the elephants in our care are so roly-poly to begin with that it's really challenging to know, you know, what that fine line is uh, for weight. To me, if, if, we, if you're weighing them monthly, you kind of know what the growth rate is for that elephant. So you would expect it to gain in a year 600 pounds, depending on how old it is. Uh, but if it gains 2,000 pounds, that's not good. It'd be like me going from, from what I weighed when I got married to my weight now in, in a year. 
it's been 53 years. So, uh, yeah, I think there's enough information out there that, that you can make for that particular elephant or, or there is some literature that says, here's the growth rate over several calves that we see at, at different stages of life because it does start to plateau. Hey Dennis, what are what are some of the um, some of the challenges that you see uh, that you face when it comes to um, you know helping facilities you know be successful in um, you know any reproduction program? We all know that you know we're not very sustainable right now, and um, you know you've been in the, in the industry so long. You know, um, you know I think I think Dennis has been you know one of the few people that we can actually say has been in the business longer than than us. So a nice way of saying, yeah. I'm not saying you're old, Dennis, just saying you're very experienced. <laughs> uh, this last year I got old. <laughs> you know, is there is there is there anything that comes to mind or nothing really that's uh, that's jumping out at you? Uh the biggest thing is is actually turnover in handlers at facilities, I think. And there's not a passing on of, of skill sets. Uh, when somebody been there 20 years leaves there's there's been no mentoring of those younger ones and it, it probably goes both ways uh but to me there's that's the biggest challenge i have is teaching people how to tether an elephant for instance in several facilities that oh we know tether elephants well if you're going to open the back gate and i'm going to get behind her she's going to be tethered <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of us were, you know, we're hiring managers as well, and um, and definitely echo that it's, um, you know, when we have an opening in our barns and try to hire people, the um, the amount of people that really are experienced are few and far between. Yeah. So then the new people have to reinvent the wheel. They they don't go back in the literature. It's in there for EMA. It's in there for for a lot of the science we got. There's still a lot we don't know. And one of my favorite analogies I used with grad students, and, and I still use it teaching some, is if uh, everything you know about an elephant's the size of a golf ball, and what you don't know is what is immediately around that golf ball, there's not a lot you don't know. And that's, I think, what happens to a lot of new recruits into the elephant business. They, they think they know it all, and they only know a little bit. But if what you know is... A, is the size of a weather balloon or bigger? There's a lot more you don't know. Yes, yeah, you, only, you know more than you did, but there's a lot more you don't know. You have more questions. Do, yeah, we have to go through the process of um, helping to pass that knowledge along. But as you know, different generations come, um, different generations learn differently, and yeah. you have to tailor your approach. You know, I mean, you're still working with students. I'm sure you've experienced lots of different generations as well, and it's trying to unlock that puzzle as well. Sometimes I'm more successful than others. You know, I wish we had more time and maybe Dennis can come on for more because I think, you know, his knowledge of like TV stuff and footwork stuff and all of that, I, I really think we could expand into. Obviously, we don't have time for that tonight, but because um, I know we're focusing on the reproduction a lot, but working with Dennis over the last couple of years, three years almost, um, his knowledge of like the TB stuff and all of that, I've learned so much from him on that because I had never experienced TB before. So um, I don't want to go into it now, but maybe, but maybe he could come back for another one and talk about that kind of stuff as well. That's one of those areas where there's a lot I don't know. 
one of the things that I learned growing up was that uh, cows don't get, I grew up on a dairy farm. We had a, a moderate sized dairy farm, bottled some milk. I learned how to work. Uh, and I was shown a good work ethic and helped along in developing that sometimes. Uh, but cows don't give milk. We have to go into the barn every morning and milk them to get the milk. You got to work for it. And you got to spend the time to do it completely and well. And uh, that's served me pretty well over the years in lots of different areas. You know, we talked a lot of, well, multi-focused on getting elephants pregnant, but I know Dennis is actually an incredible resource as well for the end result when the birth happens as well. Um, you know, what are some of the things that uh, over the years you've learned about, um, about the birthing process and these animals? They're everyone different. No two are the same. Uh, some are really easy. I can stand back and say, wasn't that great? And others, uh, I'm, I'm brought in as the expert. And X is the unknown, the spurts to drip under pressure, but it's my job to take the brunt so the veterinarian can live with, within the community and not take that responsibility. Uh, I've been at over 65 births. A lot of them weren't good because I was called in because they knew it wasn't good. Uh, but a lot of them are successful, thank goodness. Uh, you know, it's elephants are completely different in that regard in, in the whole reproductive track and getting a calf on the ground completely different than any other animal I'm aware of. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities because the umbilical cord is so short. It's such a long ways for them to get out instead of just under the anus. It's basically goes around the corner and out under their belly. Uh, and it provides more opportunities for things to go wrong. Uh, and when they go nice and easy, I enjoy them. And I hope to enjoy more as we go. It sounds like <laughs> it's common sense, but is there a distinct correlation between the fitness, like the physical fitness of the elephant and successful births? Uh, it's hard to say because so many elephants, the public likes round fat elephants. Yeah. So many elephants are, are obese that it's, it's, I think it is a correlation, but there's not enough numbers to, to really know. It's kind of like, I'm a co-author on a paper on the sex of calves from AI. And it, early on, it was on a slow number. And it's often misquoted because, and I fought for that, to say that it's not enough numbers to know. It's a trend at the time with a low number of animals. Uh, and that's a problem we have with anything, trying to publish anything on elephants is there's just not enough numbers to really make a statistical certainty out of it. And it's like my father-in-law had 20 head of Herefords and the first 10 calves were all bulls and he was blaming the semen. The next 10 calves were all heifers. So it ended up, but if he just stopped at the 10, he would have thought that all he got was bulls from that. Over 60 births, how cool is that? What a, what a, what a cool thing to experience, whether whether they were not all good or not, it's a yeah. So oh, they yeah, and the, and the people that work with them are so un, involved and and passionate about their elephants. That's that's what's great with with me uh, is, is working with with the people that are. Hey, we're here at two in the morning. 
and we've been here at two in the morning for 10 nights. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought early on in my, not early on, fairly early on in my elephant career, I'd been at nine births and we'd had all at Springfield at the zoo there. And I went to my first trip to India and I thought I would talk to some well-known veterinarians there. There'd probably been a lot of elephant births and they could kind of help me understand all the intricacies. And I found out that nobody over there had even been to more than two. Because well, it's not part of the culture. Right. We've all seen the evolution of elephants and human care, at least in North America, and the changes we've gone through. Um, some good, some some questionable. Uh, you know, how do you, what do you think are some of the most important changes, uh, beneficial changes in, in your career that have helped you or helped elephants in general? Well, for reproduction, it was the uh, cow side test for LH peaks that they use in dogs and cats and works from, happens to also work for dolphins and elephants and rhinos. So, uh, we could have a cow side test in 15 minutes and know whether they were having an LH peak or not. Uh, that's one of the big technological steps that we had where it used to take me uh, for running progesterone. We ran uh, radioimmunoassays in and I ran them in house and I could get them done in four to six hours. But uh, when we were trying to do AIs offsite, Early on, we were and we didn't have the LH test. All we had was that progesterone level. So they would send me samples every day. When I had it up slightly for two days, then it was already their third day. So we would collect semen and then drive down. So we were four to five days behind an LH peak probably sometimes. So that having that that uh, calcite LH test really helped a lot. And, and we had we had an ELISA that we could do in an hour or two as well before the strip test came available. But Nancy, uh, hmm. now UC Davis developed uh, an ELISA for LH that, that helped a lot, did the same kind of thing. It told us if we had a peak, it just took a couple of hours in the laboratory to do that after you got the blood sample. I, I remember uh, a question. We, um... If you could take your, your vet magic wand and wave it and solve one problem that we're having in alpha management, what, what comes to mind? Veterinary management? Yeah. Chest x-rays. Mm. Even upper leg x-rays, radiographs. Uh, that leads into what Nick was talking about on TV. That's the biggest problem we have. We don't have any way of knowing whether we're successful with treatment other than either they don't shed, and that's been our goal is to stop shedding if they have it. But we don't know what the result of that is till they die either 10 or 20 years later, or maybe a few years later if they're really old, uh, and know if in fact we were successful. So chest x-rays is what we use in people. It would certainly help us with elephants, but that's a, that's a big mountain to climb. Very cool answer. I wasn't expecting any answer. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it would help in a lot of other ways as well. Uh, if we had that technology, 
to look at lesions on the lung field like that, then we can look at a lot finer lesions on, on feet, for instance. Do you, do you think you would be or we would be where we are if you didn't have the resources of the, like the people that came through the university to do a lot of work to help you? You know what I mean? Like I mean, over the years, I've met so many of your students that have come through and worked on projects that have helped with things. And what a, again, what a, how lucky are we in the industry to have that resource of, of you wearing so many different hats to benefit elephants? I enjoyed it and they kept me young. Uh, and yeah, that was, that was a big help. The university was able to provide one for me every year. Well, actually, <laughs> I, was, I was fortunate enough to become the graduate administrator for the College of Natural and Applied Science, of which AG was a part of at the time. So I had control of all the graduate stipends. So I made sure I had one new one every year for two years. And then the other, the other thing that really helped me was when Ringling stepped up and when they brought me on for three quarter time to the university, they paid the university and then the university paid me my salary. But, but uh, they also funded grad students during that time for me. Uh, and that helped a lot in many ways. And we were able to look at some things that others may have been able to do that in my stead for sure. Uh, but I, I actually just was talking Gary, with Gary Johnson yesterday. Uh, too many elephant people don't realize how much Ringling Feld or Entertainment or Ringling Brothers did behind the scenes for elephants. And one of the things was Dr. Kiesel and myself were able to go to facilities and Ringling paid all our expenses to go. Uh, and that was a, that was a luxury for the elephant community. And, and even like for herpes, uh, for years, uh, that's the only way the herpes lab kept going is Ringling paid, uh, 50,000 a year to keep the lab open. Uh, because I said, this is something we've got to have. And now, now they're, of course they're not, uh, they're not in elephants anymore. They're not, uh, uh, supporting elephant conservation like they were. And they were supporting a lot of elephant conservation overseas as well. So uh, I was fortunate to, to have that support from, from Feld and was able to bring Wendy on board. And, and Feld provided for her PhD program as well while I was there. I, I ended up wearing some extra hats for Ringling Brothers. Some may not have been really aware of. Uh, at the time I was doing a lot of consulting a good friend of mine that was a veterinarian uh, for ring of time said he was moving on uh, because of some person, personal reasons. Uh, so they were, they wanted to hire a director of research and conservation and a head veterinarian. And I had interviewed for a job with them five or six years earlier and, and they made the offer for me to be, if you remember uh, uh, John, anyway, they were replace, replacing him and I interviewed and they offered me the job, but they wanted me to go around doing all this uh, talking at, at 
hearings and talking to city council, talking to legislators all over the states and in DC. And I said, I got too much to do. That's not my, what my strength is right now. Well, I ended up doing both. So I became the head veterinarian and the director of research and conservation. I, I remember, I can't remember his name, John, as well. I remember one of my first EMA conferences, um, my coworker and I were there. And I remember, you know, seeing John in the, in the room and we wanted to go ask him a question, but we we're terrified to walk up and ask him a question because we were just these new, these young punks. And we finally got enough nerve to go up there and, and ask him a question and couldn't have been a nicer guy. And uh, yeah, uh, answering our he was question. a great guy. It was a shame. Yeah. Pancreatic cancer got him in a hurry. Yeah. Again, okay, it's one of those things is that, you know, um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, we didn't Kirkland. know at all. Kirkland, yeah, John Kirkland. Yeah, yeah. No, we didn't know him at all, but it was just, um, you know, kind of lesson learned, you know, staying in the corner and not talking, you're not going to learn anything. So yeah. sometimes just, you know, take a deep breath and dive in. I've been very fortunate in the elephant community. We've been fortunate to have you be a part of it, that's for sure. It's it's 99% fun. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> 99%. That's a lot. I don't know if I can go that high, but it's yeah, it's you fun. can it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Depends on how much alcohol is involved. <laughs> Some of the time, the best times are not around elephants, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We got in trouble. The first day ICAF was born, and of course, as a city zoo, no alcohol was allowed on the ground. And we had a bottle of champagne in the barn. We forgot there were cameras in the barn. <laughs> And the city manager came by the next day to congratulate us and said, uh, but next time, don't put the public, don't put the champagne out in the front of the camera. <laughs> Thanks again for once again listening to Packy Chat. You know, I say it every time, but, you know, Packy Chat is not about agendas or anything like that. It's just a, a handful of guys getting together and talking about elephants and our passion for elephants. So we're not trying to push anything on anybody. Uh, we hope that anyone that listens has an open mind and, you know, if you can take one or two things away from the stuff we talk about, great. Uh, if it spurs on uh, some conversation in the barn or makes you think about things differently or even reassures that what you're doing is right, uh, you know, that's all great. You know, we, I'll say it over and over, we love elephants and we love to talk about them. So that's what this is all about. So thanks so much for listening to us. And thanks as always for supporting us on Facebook or wherever you listen to your podcasts couple things. If you have other topics you want to hear us talk about, send us a, a message on Facebook or email us at packychatpodcasts at gmail.com. P-A-C-H-Y-C-H-A-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Uh, and we'll answer those emails uh, as soon as we can or give us ideas for future topics. And again, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, we are on Patreon now. Uh, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, uh, and look up Packy Chat. And all that is is a way to help support us. Uh, you know, I know times are tough for everybody, and we're certainly not looking to make a profit on Packy Chat. But uh, there are some expenses that go along with it. Microphones, uh, software, podcast space, all that thing costs money that we're paying for out of our pocket right now, which we're f happy to do. If you like us, like us enough to support us, that's great. You know what? And if now is not the time to provide any uh, financial support, we are so cool with that as well. Just uh, give us a like and share with your friends. That's good enough for us. 
Uh, as always, thanks so much for listening to us, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.